This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. Now, Robert, last week you left us on a cliffhanger because you said that after the podcast you were about to go off and interview the Prime Minister about AI. What happened? So the most surreal, I mean, fun isn't quite the word, but certainly the most surreal part of those two days is I went to the extraordinary chinwag between Elon Musk and the Prime Minister at Lancaster House, that sort of foreign office building where they filmed quite a lot of the crown. It's incredibly regal and majestic and ornate. And so they were sitting on a stage and there was this really weird thing where it was the Prime Minister interviewing Elon Musk. And some people have said it made the Prime Minister look slightly like the junior partner, the sort of supplicant in this relationship, rather than, you know, in theory, one of the most powerful people on the planet. And first of all, as a sort of symbol of where power lies in the world with these digital giants, and, you know, he is an astonishingly powerful, wealthy entrepreneur with, you know, whether it's Tesla or X or his own AI ventures. We've talked about him in the past. I mean, he is incredibly powerful. And you slightly felt the prime minister could be seen as paying some homage to the great powers of this, this new world. But the other thing is he, uh, I'm trying to choose my words sensitively. He does say some very weird <laughs> things, Musk. I mean, he, as you know, is developing humanoid robots. And then he, he just went off on this riff about how scary these humanoid robots are. And he did this thing about how humanoid robots were going to sort of chase us up the stairs or chase us into trees and try and kill us. What? And, and how important it was that, you know, when we release these humanoid robots into the world, there's an off switch, which might be a word that sort of triggers their safe mode, which we shout at this humanoid <laughs> robot when it's trying to kill us. And honestly, he's deadly serious about this stuff. He has a lot of detail about how when you design these robots, they can't have their software upgraded from the internet because that will make them even more vulnerable to being taken over by malign interest. How did Rishi react to that when he was saying stuff like that? What was Rishi doing? Was he just gr sitting grinning along? <laughs> Rishi knowing, actually, I have to say, this is what it's reflected rather well on Rishi, knowing that Musk is developing these things, he finished that section by saying, I'm not sure you're selling these robots terribly well. <laughs> Which is quite, it was quite a good moment. Yeah. But anyway, maybe we should move on to yes. uh, what we've got on the, the show. We're going to be, certainly to an extent, still in the what you might call the tech and digital space, aren't we, sir? Yeah, there's loads going on at the moment and some really interesting personalities behind it all as well. The biggie, of course, is Sam Bankman-Fried, who has uh, just been convicted, hasn't he, of one of the biggest financial frauds in history. This is to do with his cryptocurrency exchange, FTX. We're going to talk about what's gone on there. And then similarly, we're going to talk, aren't we, Robert, about the trouble at WeWork. They filed for bankruptcy now. They have. And 
You know, I remember when WeWork was being lauded as sort of the equivalent of Airbnb. I mean, weirdly, although when you look at it, it's a very basic property business. It somehow managed to get the aura of these digital infrastructure companies. And its rise and fall has been spectacular. And I think it's a story that tells us a bit about the hype that can get around, particularly sort of companies with a digital aura and the lessons there for this great AI boom, but also the consequences of this move from an era of basically cheap money, zero interest rates to a world of quite high interest rates. So I think it's a really important story. And along with those stories, we're also going to be getting into the Christmas spirit by talking about the importance of Christmas ads for the retailers. It's their golden quarter that we're in now. So we're going to be talking about whether the glossy Christmas ads matter anymore and what's going on there. And then, of course, we'll answer your questions too. So a reminder on that, restismoney at gmail.com. But where are we going first, Robert? Let's start with the extraordinary fraud and now conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried, creator of FTX. Again, one of those companies that was absolutely fated for a couple of of years. Tell us a bit about that story, Steph. Yeah, so it's really interesting because the big personality here is this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried. Let me tell you who he is. He's He's a lad who grew up in San Francisco. His parents were Stanford law professors. You know, he went to a very prestigious school paying 56 grand a year for the honor of going there. He then ended up studying at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Graduated from there with a physics and maths degree in 2014 and went into a trading firm for a bit. And he had this whole idea based on talking to some of his mates about, you know, how could they get rich and get rich with a view to then giving money to charity. This is a really mad element to the story about him was this kind of altruistic movement that he also had going on with his mates from MIT. Which we should remind people is a sort of movement that has influence well beyond Sam Bankman-Fried. It's called effective altruism. It was sort of created by a couple of academics originally out of Oxford, but then they sort of shipped over to the States. And it's basically a very extreme form of John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism. It's a sort of end justifies the means sort of philosophy. And what it encouraged, particularly incredibly bright young people in America going to the sort of top Ivy League universities like Harvard and Stanford and MIT, was that they should accumulate the maximum amount of money because with the maximum amount of money, they would be able to do the maximum amount of good. And it sort of also meant that it sort of justified making money in a way that you might not think of as being particularly socially useful, particularly in some aspects of what Wall Street does. But that was okay so long as when you accumulated your hundreds of millions or your billions, you then put it to good work. Yeah, and don't end up going to prison for fraud, uh, which seems like the absolute extreme of altruism, doesn't it? Coming back to his story then, so as you rightly say, he was all big into this altruistic movement. And the idea was, I mean, he originally wanted to go into animal wealth welfare. But then his mates were saying, actually, if you want to make a difference in animal welfare, you need to earn loads of money and then donate that money. So he, he got into crypto trading. You know, he'd been working at this the trading firm Jane Street, but then got into buying crypto himself. You know, he's buying it basically from one place and selling it for a higher price to another. And then he set up this crypto trading firm called Almeida Research. He set that up in 2017. And at its peak, it was trading something like $21 billion of cryptocurrency every day. They then went on to found this exchange, which is the one where all the, the, the troubles come from, this FTX, this you know, futures exchange place. He set that up with his old uni mate, Gary Wang, and that allowed people to buy and sell crypto. So this was 2019. So it wasn't that long ago. And this lad is young then. He was still in his 20s, had a net worth of something like 22 billion dollars, was regularly on the Forbes list of, you know, richest young person, big donor as well to the Democrats too. He was one of the largest, essentially to try and curry favor perhaps for legislation around cryptocurrencies, you know, friendly legislation there. And around the early 2022, so just last year, investors valued FTX at 40 billion dollars. So this was a business that was absolutely flying. If you look at Michael Lewis's book, in some ways it's a gripping book, but lots of people think that Michael Lewis in his book about Zambag Madfrey has been a bit too kind 
to him. Lewis says that actually there was a period where the sort of wealth on some valuations that this guy very temporarily had generated was significantly bigger even than that 30, 40 billion, which is sort of off the charts crazy for a business that we now think wasn't a real business. I think the other aspect of all of this which is fascinating, is the extent almost from being a child, he sort of creates these sort of myths about who he is. As you say, he's got these incredibly brainy Stanford law professor parents, and they sort of say he was never really an ordinary child. He didn't play with other children. He's more comfortable talking to adults. He was very much a sort of loner. They always sort of struggled to parent him, they say, in a sort of conventional way. I mean, there's this sort of awful picture I had in my mind when he was being sentenced of them just looking completely ashen in the courtroom as he was being sentenced. There were sort of descriptions of just how shocked and horrified, because obviously they sort of doted on this, what they thought of as being this special child. Some would say that he, to use a phrase, was somebody who was neurodiverse and that's why he sort of got away within business of being very different. You know, he's rude to people consistently. When he conducted interviews with people or was talking to people, he would be playing a computer game at the same time. And he rejected the conventional way to business. Now, normally when people break all the rules, you can't raise money. This was a guy who was cultivated this image of himself as the boy genius. And it's amazing the supposedly sophisticated investors who gave him astonishing amounts of money to back his businesses, the most famous of all being perhaps the most distinguished of all the venture capital firms on the West Coast of America, Sequoia, backed him late, gave him hundreds of millions of dollars, which has now been wiped out. And literally, shortly before the business goes bust, puts on its website thousands of words about how Sam Bankman-Fried is this business genius changing the global world of finance forever. I mean, they were really taken in. I mean, so what happened? Because, you know, what we've seen from this court case then is, you know, he misappropriated and embezzled customers out of something like $10 billion, isn't he? He was siphoning money from the FTX to his crypto-focused hedge fund. The donations that went to the Democrats, they say, came from stolen FTX deposits as well. And then you saw the net worth of the business fall rapidly. And there was one point it fell from like $16 billion to $3 billion overnight. Maybe it's worth talking about a sort of a conversation I had over the weekend with a big institutional investor who was thinking of putting money into, you know, FTX. And just to go to the heart of it before we get on to that, I mean, you know, just in terms of a sort of classic, you don't do this, his girlfriend is running the investing side of it, Alameda. She loses a ton of money. He then allows money to go from customer accounts in the exchange, FTX, to cover those losses. Now, those sorts of connected transactions between different entities are just straightforwardly wrong. And so that takes me then to this conversation that this investor had with Sam Bankman-Fried, where in fact, this investor was one of those who refused to give him money, but he was unusual. And the reason he refused to give him money is he made a couple of basic requests. So Sam Bankman-Fried had come to him, as he had to various other investors. And this investor said, well, if I'm going to put money in, I'd quite like one of our people on your board, to which Sam Bankman-Fried said, no way. So then he said, all right, okay, well, we like what we see of the business. We'd like you to appoint some independent non-executives to your board. Again, Sam Bankman-Fried said, absolutely no way. And all, just to be clear, and I'm sure everybody listening to this knows that, it is just conventional for a business of any size to have some outside voices on a board. And Sam Bankman-Fried basically said, no way, no outsiders, I'm doing it my way. And then the, the investor said the final thing, which is relevant to the fraud. He said, by the way, how therefore are you going to keep track of the occasional related party transaction. And a related party transaction is when you transfer funds or assets from one part of a business empire to another part. And as I say, we've got the Alameda investment part, which is looking after effectively Sam Bankman-Fried and his, and his co-investors' personal money, right? And FTX, which is supposed to be trading on behalf of thousands and thousands of customers all over the world. There is supposed to be no investment 
risk by putting your money into FTX in the sense that your risk is if the value of Bitcoin or whatever goes up and down, but it shouldn't be at risk if FTX value goes up and down or Alameda's value goes up and down. That money is supposed to be in completely ring-fenced customer accounts. So this is like a huge alarm bell going off a couple of years before it goes bust. Sam Bankman-Fried says to this investor, well, there are so many related party transactions every day, there's no way of keeping track of them in that sense. And so at this point, this investor just says, right, uh, there's no way I'm going to touch this with a barge bowl, which makes it all the more extraordinary that very reputable investors did put money in. And I think this tells you a lot about how investors behave when there's a mania right? Mm, Um, There was massive hype, massive mania around Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. This was supposed to be the new gold rush. And one of the things that's extraordinary, even about really professional investors like Sequoia, is none of them ever want to be left out of the boom. And in the case of Sequoia, they had almost no investments in this area. They came really late to it. And on that basis, they seem to have sort of suspended judgment. It feels like things are made, as you said, it's the hype, but things are made so complex that it's a bit like the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? I feel like sometimes people don't want to admit they don't necessarily understand it, but they want to be part of the potential money making from it. You know, that basically was like the subprime crisis, wasn't it? With all these collateralized debt obligations and things being dressed up in such a way it was really hard to unpick them but the thing that I was really interested in this is I love a court case I'm fascinated by the ins and outs of what goes on (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna treasure those words and in terms of the jury understanding it all as well because I remember when I was covering the trial of Conrad Black and I was out in Chicago for it I was there when they were picking the jury to cover the case and it was fascinating the questions they were asked by the court so Basically, if you were anti-capitalist or anti-rich or anything like that, you weren't allowed on the jury. So they'd ask people questions like, what do you think of someone who avoids paying tax? You know, not in an illegal way, but what if someone uses tax avoidance? And if you said, oh, I don't think it's fair, you're out the door. (laughs) So what (laughs) happened was you saw lots of jurors who were just like, I don't care, making it onto the jury. And then watching this Sam Bankman-Free case, I was just like, there's so much complexity to it. Except there wasn't, was there? Because the jury returned a verdict in seven hours. Yes, that's the amazing thing about it. Yeah, you know, it was. It was in the end. It was very straightforward. You just see big sums of money moving from one place to another in a way that defies the normal rules of what's proper. And a jury just makes up their mind. But the investors Uh, couldn't see that. That's my point. When it was put out to the jury, I kept thinking this is going to be so complicated. And actually, the reality is that he was siphoning off money everywhere. So how could no one see that beforehand? Because they didn't want to see. I mean, one of the things I am gripped by is this effective altruism philosophy we were talking about earlier, which I think did give the whole thing a sort of cloak of respectability. Now, I was talking to you earlier about the extraordinary things that Elon Musk was saying to the Prime Minister. Elon Musk is somebody who has given substantial sums of money to the effective altruism movement. One of the reasons why people are so focused on the extinction risk of artificial intelligence, as opposed to the damage that it potentially can do to the job prospects of millions of people, is because in the effective altruism sort of view of the world, the ultimate appalling thing that can happen is the wipeout of the human race. One of the reasons why I think everybody's so obsessed with the extinction risk is because the big players in this world have sort of been captured by effective altruism rather than on the impact of AI on everyday lives, which is somewhat more important. Well, at least as important as it were. I'm not saying don't protect yourself against extinction risk, but, you know... (laughs) This has taken a turn. (laughs) But let's also think about how we make the best of this technology for people's lives now. One thing I just wanted to mention from this as well is because there's been lots of talk from this case about whether this is about cryptocurrency and the downfall of that. And I think the lesson from this isn't about cryptocurrency, is it? It's a lesson about fraud. Oh, it's definitely a lesson about fraud. But I think right at the beginning of Bitcoin, and for a number of years, people thought that cryptocurrency was going to completely change the financial economy. It hasn't, right? It has become a very speculative asset that's broadly where 
where it's rested at the moment. There are technological spin-offs which may, over time, massively change the infrastructure of the global financial economy. But along with there being too much hype around this particular company, FTX, there's been way too much hype around the potential of cryptocurrency to change the world for the better, which I think probably also takes us on to the other thing we want to talk about, which is another boom-bust story, another mega-hype gone-bad story, which is the story of WeWork, which does have some things in common, doesn't it? Yeah, it's got another big personality behind it, certainly. Honestly, this seems to be, you know, last week we were talking about Babylon, weren't we? And Ali Parser, who was yeah, the, the charismatic individual who then couldn't live up to the hype. And I think there's a very similar story with WeWork. You could call it We Don't Work Now, couldn't you, given it's uh, just filed for bankruptcy. But this is a fascinating business. You know, there's even been an Apple TV mini series made starring Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway about all of this. So it's been one that's very much been dominant in the headlines for a number of years. Shall I give you the potted history that you know I love to do on these things? <laughs> well, you do, the, you do the potted history better than anybody else on the planet. So I think there will definitely be a few people who don't know this extraordinary boom-bust story. So just, yeah, just take, take us through it. Okay, so it's called WeWork. It was founded in 2010 by a guy called Adam Newman and Miguel McKelvey. Adam Newman was played by Jared Leto in the series, which shows you how big of a, a role he has to play in all this. Um, he'd had a couple of other businesses before he went into this kind of office leasing area. So it, one of them was actually a clothing range for babies, which had knee pads in didn't do particularly well. Anyway, he then met up with this mate, Miguel, who was an architect, and they came up with a company called Green Desk. And that is, is a little bit similar to WeWork in the sense of they worked with one particular landlord and did, you know, renting out spaces in an office, but they sold that off and decided to create this much bigger entity, WeWork. And the business model was basically leasing big properties and then subletting sections of it at a higher price. There's nothing extraordinary about that. It's temporary office space, basically. Yeah. You, you might be a, a small business or even just an individual. We see these you know, these temporary office spaces everywhere, but they were a pioneer. I mean, we should yeah, be clear, they were. I, it was a pioneer in that But space. it wasn't, in terms of a business model, it was nothing extraordinary. It's the sense that Adam, behind the scenes, was a brilliant salesman. I remember at the time when it was absolutely booming and worth allegedly tens of billions of dollars, right? Basically, financial papers were sort of writing it up as though it was like an Uber or an, or an Airbnb. Where did, where, how on earth did it get that aura? Yeah, well, it came from Adam because that's the way he saw it to people. He was this really charismatic guy who essentially created like a cult-like community with the WeWork people. So he attracted lots of millennials to work for them and created this like student union type atmosphere with partying and drinking. And, you know, he did like a music festival camp every year. And then investors, when they came in to see these offices and things, he would get like all the people who worked there to fill up spaces in there and look like they were having the best time ever. You know, his whole philosophy around WeWork, he then decided to set up like We Grow, which was an idea of like a school where there's, uh, you know, less of the focus on these strict lessons and more about the creativity of young people. And then We Live was uh, these small apartments where, you know, with big communal areas. But it was, I mean, that was nothing more than student accommodation in my eyes, but it was sold as this community dream. And, you know, the way it works is, because I've used WeWork offices and things before in London, and it's, you know, you've, you use the app to book your space in, you know, you can do a day pass or you can do a membership, like a gym. And then you go there and it's that thing of free drinks, a bit more classy than your typical water cooler. You know, there'd be a posh coffee machine there and things like that. And it, it just sold this kind of dream of this is how we should all be living and working together. And the other fundamental part of this story was the relationship he built with Masayoshi Sun, who is the you know CEO of SoftBank, an incredibly important person in finance. Global finance. I mean, you know, he's one of the most powerful investors in the exactly. world. Exactly. And he was wooed totally by Adam Newman. And at its peak, he, I mean, they invested incredible amounts of money into the business. And at its peak, this business was valued at 47 
billion dollars. It was providing these co-working desk space offices and commercial buildings in more than 120 cities in 40 countries. And can I also point out one aspect of this, which I think is also extraordinary, and this is the difference between Newman and Bankman Freed. Newman managed to get out with quite a big wedge in his pocket. So, you know, WeWork's now gone bust, but he got into serious financial difficulties. Yeah, 2019 was when he stepped down with a golden parachute of nearly $2 billion. And, you know, SoftBank Son rescues them. And, you know, so Newman gets his debts paid off and he gets hundreds of millions of dollars in his pocket for creating a business that then gets into terrible trouble. It's, it is amazing how, you know, I say, unlike Bankman Freed, he did all right out of this. Yeah, he did. So he, he obviously left in 2019 with this huge golden parachute. And that was because there were starting to be lots of stories coming out about Adam and the company's finances and actually what was going on behind the scenes. So he kind of got pushed out, but pushed out with a lot of money. But then that was 2019. And of course, we all know what happened shortly after that. And the big problem was that this company, we had signed loads of expenses, leases just before the pandemic. And then with working habits changing and people obviously not using office space in the same way because of hybrid working, it's absolutely crushed them. And so they've been trying to fight to get out of all these expensive leases that they've been in, which is part of this filing for bankruptcy, isn't it? Well, yeah. And I think, but I think there's another really important point. You know, I've been talking to people in the property industry, people who, you know, run very, very big property companies. And the other point that they all make, and this is very clear, is that WeWork was a creature of those 10 to 15 years where interest rates were coming down and then stayed at close to zero for years. It was able to borrow colossal sums, very favorable terms to invest in these very long leaseholds of commercial real estate. And we have now entered into this new era of genuinely very high nominal interest rates, five, six percent for a business that is not the highest quality. You're struggling to raise money at an interest rate of less than eight, nine, ten percent. And so when you've got these twin problems, of the COVID pandemic, which means people are not coming in to use your properties. Just on that, the occupancy rates are fascinating if you look at them. So Remit Consultant look into this and they say that commercial property in the UK has an occupancy now of around 35% compared to between 60 and 80% before the pandemic. So that in itself, so I want to get on to the longer term implications of what's going on in a second, but it's just important to explain to people in simple terms why a business like this is A, inherently risky in the first place, and secondly, why it can get into trouble like this. I mean, to be absolutely clear, when I look at a model, and I'm just amazed again that the initial investors just didn't see the inherent risks here, okay, there are are always risks when you are taking on obligations of a long-term nature. So in the case of WeWork, let's say you're signing a lease for 15, 20 years on a building, but the income you're taking in from customers, you know, you said you use an app to book a WeWork space for a day, right? So you've got guaranteed income of a day versus guaranteed outgoings for 15 years. That's a massive mismatch. And obviously, in a boom time, when everybody wants a bit of office space, and you think you've got some technology where you can basically control, uh, if, if, you know, if there's a boom and there's a shortage of, of office space, you can shuffle people from one office to another and keep the income flowing in in an, in an efficient way. That's great. But when the economy slows down, as it has been, what you then notice is you're not getting the customers through the door, but you've still got these massive liabilities. And at the same time, if you've made the mistake, which some property businesses frequently do, of not having completely matched financing for your long leases, I mean, let's just say, you know, you've, you've got a bunch of debt that matures in five, 10 years, but your leases are 15 years. When you refinance that debt, the interest you're paying is also going to be going through the roof. So it isn't a surprise that a business like WeWork gets into such difficulties. But equally, I think we should be clear that this is a sort of canary in the coal mine 
for the property industry, both in Britain and America. There are some very well-financed conservative property companies around the place, but there are also plenty of other businesses that have got this mismatch between the outgoings that they've got and both the shorter-term nature of the tenancies and the shorter-term nature of their debt. And as these businesses refinance at higher rates of interest, many of them are going to be getting into very serious trouble. Yeah. Like you say, it's not just WeWork, because did you see recently Meta has paid £149 million to get out of their lease agreement for one of their big offices in London. So they had this eight-storey building in Regent's Park, and they've ended up paying about seven years' worth of rent just to get out of their lease arrangement, because they had about 18 years left on it. And that is all about, obviously, the, the change in uh, where we work. I mean, you must see, I see it on my commute all the time, the difference. Oh, yeah, no, totally. I mean, just one other thing, and I think, you know, before we move on to the break, when you get a collapse like the WeWork one, you've also then got to look at where the pain will be distributed. You know, it's one of the biggest leases of space in New York. It's, you know, leases an enormous amount of property in London. The companies that leased these properties to WeWork, some of them will will be taking a big hit because the income flow from WeWork is no longer going to be there. And the other thing which was interesting about the WeWork model, and again, I was talking to a big property investor about this, some of these freeholders, you know, these big investors in property actually kitted out the WeWork offices. They used their own money to put in place the sort of lavish, lavish working environments that people like you took advantage of. And all of that will have to be written off. These big collapses, they ripple through the business community in a very unpleasant way. And one of the things we've been talking about is, you know, we've moved to this new era of higher interest rates, and we have not by any means yet seen the damage that it will do to a whole variety of different businesses and investors. Yeah, because I was talking to an analyst in the in the property market about commercial property recently. He was saying that they're predicting that the value of offices is going to fall by 40% in London over the next couple of years. So, you know, to picture what that knock-on effect it might have is incredible. On that cheerful note, I think we should probably go to a break. Yeah. Let's talk Christmas next after the break. That'll cheer us up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into Nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds gummy clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Pester. Now, Steph, you've been watching the Christmas ads. I have. I must admit, I uh, I do love this time of year. I don't love all the ads, but I do get well into watching them all. And there's some crackers out again this year. Shed loads of money spent on them. That's the thing that I am really interested about and what I want to talk about now, because lots of people are eagerly waiting to see how John Lewis are going to you know, make us get into the Christmas spirit this year. So they've got their ad coming out on Thursday. They've put out a little trailer and it involves some cute kid at a car boot sale asking his gran if he can you know, have this box which says grow your own perfect Christmas tree. So they've just put out this little snippet 
What do you reckon? It's going to be like a Jack in the Bean bo- bean uh, box, beans, Jack in the Beanstalk kind of. Yeah, it'll have some emotional element about him loving his gran and all that. And we'll all shed a tear and then John Lewis will hope that we spend loads of money at them. But we've had Asda, we've had M&S, we've had Amazon. Yeah, Aldi's always my favourite. I like the Kevin the Carrot vibe. What's the Aldi one this year? So the Aldi one this year is about Kevin the Carrot, who's become a bit of a staple in the Christmas ads from Aldi. And he goes to a version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So it's Kevin and the Christmas Factory. And then, you know, basically he's like Charlie. And there's instead of Willy Wonka, there's Willy Conker. And there's all these different vegetables. <laughs> and and then it's really cute, actually. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am a fan of the Aldi one. They once sent me me in onion form as part of their Christmas marketing, Steph McCunion. So I joined the Kevin the Carrot family. That is <laughs> such an honor. I'm very jealous, I, I have to say. But, you know, I am fascinated by where this all started. And, and it, it was John Lewis who kicked all this off. And, and I had a, a very long conversation with Andy Street about this once, who, of course, was the M. MD of John Lewis. He took over in 2007, just as we were going into this financial crisis. And he said, all the graphs were going down and he was panicking, thinking, what is it my fault (laughs) in business? And he said, instead of tightening their belts, they basically took a gamble. They upped their marketing and hired a new ad agency. And they set out on this kind of bold advertising campaign rather than being about specific products, like most of the Christmas ads were at the time, they decided to tell an emotive story instead. And the the brief Andy says he gave the ad agency was tell the story of trust because he thought that that was a story that other retailers wouldn't be able to tell. He felt that they couldn't copy it. And, you know, this was £7 million spent on these emotive ads. But he says it was the best £7 million they ever spent because they saw it come back with sales growth, with, you know, brand loyalty and all that. And then everyone just started to copy the John Lewis vibe of trying to make everyone cry at Christmas in their ads. I mean, I think it's important to say that although this is this huge moment in the advertising calendar, there have been changes since that initial John Lewis foray. One of them is when John Lewis started, it was all about the advert on television. Now these ads are distributed, obviously still important to television, but you know, online, on social media, on various digital channels, it's everywhere mm. on every kind of media, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, if you look at the statistics on it, for last year's Christmas ads, the John Lewis one had over 19 million views on on social media. So not including, obviously, people seeing it on the telly as well. And, you know, if you look at something like they did this um, ad in, I think it was about 2016 with Buster the dog, who was a boxer dog. And this little girl had got a trampoline for Christmas and the dog was jealous watching all the night creatures bouncing on this trampoline. So on Christmas morning, the dog runs on and gets on it first before the little girl and everyone's like, what? But that, that was the most shared advert of that year on social media. They they reckon for every one pound that was spent on it, it brought eight pounds for John Lewis. So this is so interesting because it seems to me two aspects of all of this that, that I'm really gripped by. One is this is the last sort of untargeted sort of mass market kind of advertising. You know, if you talk to people in the industry, everybody's about tailoring the advert based on data of the individual customer. There's none of that here. This is just everybody loves Christmas. Everybody's going to get a Christmas ad. And so I'm sort of interested the extent to which it does contribute to people buying more in John Lewis or Marks and Spencer or or wherever, and um, you know whether there is a sort of causal link. But then the other thing, which is really interesting, I was talking to a really big figure in the advertising industry who was saying that last year he felt there was less money being spent by the big retailers on Christmas ads, but they've all gone to town this year mm. with massive productions. You know, sort of Michael Bublé has been hired, and Gasly, Hannah Waddenham, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, so we, we, you know we're talking big stars, big money, right? And you know, intrigued by why this is because as you and I have discussed, and we're actually going to get this confirmed on Friday. You know, the economy is flatlining. In fact, it's probable when we get the GDP figures on Friday, we are going to see that the economy shrank in the three months to the end of September, and normally against a backdrop of what looks like recession. 
there isn't big advertising mm. spend. And actually, quite startlingly, ITV, my employer's results have just landed for the third quarter of the year. And it, it includes this phrase, the advertising market remains very challenging. And over the full year of 2023, we expect our total advertising revenue to be down around 8% compared with the previous year. Now, the previous year was quite a good year for advertising because of the impact of the World Cup. But an 8% fall is a manifestation of a very challenging advertising market. But apparently, this figure was saying that the big retailers have just decided we need cheering up at Christmas and they were just, whatever the economic climate, they were just going to spend this year because they think the mood of the nation is to enjoy Christmas. Well, that's it. That's what I was going to say. That's the crux of this is no matter how much people are struggling, there's still a view that people want to, you know, really enjoy Christmas. Because I don't know if you remember, there was an ad a couple of years back just after the pandemic where Santa had to show his COVID pass in order to, you know, carry on traveling around to deliver the presents. And there was a real backlash because people were like, we don't want to hear about COVID at Christmas. We'd much rather see loads of celebrities (laughs) sitting around having a lavish Christmas dinner or whatever. So that it's gone back to that vibe of actually, even though people are struggling, people want to forget about that at Christmas and actually enjoy the nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, you get that. I mean, everything happening in the world at the moment is depressing. So people want, you know, we all want a bit of escapism. Yeah, the other clever thing that I think happens with these Christmas ads in an attempt to try and get them to pay for themselves, not just with sales in stores generally, but also they'll merchandise quite a few of the, you know, characters you'll see in these Christmas ads, like Aldi. Everyone went wild for Kevin the Carrot when Kevin the Carrot first appeared in these Christmas ads a few years ago. And it was that every kid suddenly wanted one of these toys. And similarly, Monty the Penguin in the John Lewis ads became something people could buy. And again, that contributes massively to the sales. And I hear what you're saying, Robert, about TV advertising definitely isn't as powerful as it was. But in terms of Christmas, I think it is because, yes, it gets it gets shared on social media a lot of times, and that's really important. But there is still a value to them putting out a really brilliant Christmas ad that they've spent a lot of money on because it will bring sales into the business for them. And John Lewis have talked about this before, about how big, uh, how much it's influenced the money they make in that golden quarter, this key time for them in terms of bolstering their profits and and making the money that they might not have done earlier in the year. So I think we've done our our patriotic duty of, you know, getting onto a slightly more positive subject in these challenging (laughs) times. And now let's find out what the punters want us to answer. Yeah. Well, there's one that links on actually, which is to do with supermarket loyalty. Should we talk about that? So this is from... I don't know whether it's Harricad or Harricad, but they've sent in a message saying loads of supermarkets now have one price for loyalty card holders and another for everyone else. How is this allowed under competition rules? Obviously, the real price is lower, question mark. This is something we talk about loads on my show, actually. We're always doing the comparisons of, you know, talking about the price of stuff in shops. We all have to do. This is how much you pay if you don't have a club card. This is how much you pay if you do have one or if you have a loyalty card. But it's an interesting topic, isn't it, Robert? It's a really interesting subject. And, you know, I think there is a sort of unfairness here, which is obviously (laughs) because you know, I'm somebody who has a smartphone and is sort of comfortable with technology. I've got all the various loyalty cards on my phone. And it is amazing the discounts you can get, you know, from the big supermarket chains and places like Boots by using your online loyalty card. I mean, astonishing, like half price. And you sort of feel you're a fool not to do it. But the problem is people with less money don't have, they don't have smartphones, right? And some of them just don't even like carrying a plastic card around. So I think there is a sort of basic unfairness here. And if you wanted pure competition, you'd want the price to be the price and just Mm. very easy to understand. So I do understand the competition law point that the questioner is making. Well, there's been an investigation into this. We did this on my show, actually, because we work with Witch quite a lot and stuff. And they've done this investigation, which is suggesting that supermarkets are hiking up their regular prices to make it look like the loyalty scheme customers are getting a discount. 
when they're not. And like you say, that as part of this investigation, they found lots of different instances of this and they have put this forward to the Competition and Markets Authority. But as you said, they were saying that not everyone can sign up to loyalty schemes. Like it does restrict you based on age and whether you've got a permanent address and like you say, access to technology. So it means like vulnerable groups or whether it's like parents and carers, school children who might be buying their lunch or people in temporary accommodation are excluded from benefiting from the lower prices, which is, you know, a big problem for them. I mean, on the other side of it, if you're somebody like me who believes in, you know, the importance of encouraging creativity within business, you know, it seems to me it would be mad to say you can't offer bonuses for loyalty. You know, there's a fine line, I suppose, between hiking prices in order to make it look as though um, the loyalty card is delivering a benefit, then that's terrible. And that's definitely anti-competitive. If, on the other hand, it's a way of forming a link with a customer, I think that is fair game myself. I think the, the other side of it is also this whole really difficult issue of data gathering and you know whether everybody who does participate in a loyalty scheme is aware enough of how the businesses that you know are using the shopping data that you give them when you're part of a, a loyalty scheme and so given that there is this really huge issue around the place of are we as individual citizens customers actually charging enough to businesses for using our data i think this is definitely part of the big debate yeah i'm sure it's one we'll come back to as well before we move on, I should point out that I am one of those sad people who, when I see the discount, you know, on my shop of how much I've saved my loyalty card, I do really like it. It's it's terrible <laughs> the extent to which we're You're all such vulnerable. A to, oh my god, I've saved five pounds! I totally fall for it. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the path to net zero electric cars and all of that. We've got a, we've had a bunch of questions relating to this. There's one about whether if we give up petrol cars and we do a lot more cycling and going on public transport, is that going to damage the economy? Then there's another one about how we're going to pay as a nation for electrification, electric vehicles, heat pumps, and so on. And then we talked a bit about the change in battery technology. There's actually been more very positive stuff this week from BMW mm. about better batteries. So should we just wrap that together? What, what's your thinking yeah. about good or bad for us in economic terms, this, this move to net zero? I'm really interested in electric cars, actually, because I drive one myself. I've got a little Citroen, which I really like, but there, there is still the big issue, particularly in this country, about the infrastructure for them in terms of charging them and also just the, the battery life on them because it's still not the same as what you would get with a fossil fuel car. And we mentioned uh, on this podcast a few weeks ago, didn't we, about Toyota and what they're doing around this to try and bring in these better batteries that have a much bigger range that, that you know there was talk of something like a 745 miles that you'll be able to get on this Toyota single 10 minute charge but that's still to come in the pipeline but what is interesting is what's happening in Norway where there is a lot of incentives there to actually drive electric cars so if you look at their sales of new vehicles they have something like 90% of new vehicle sales in Norway are electric cars. And they haven't banned diesel and petrol cars there either. They've just made it really attractive to have an electric car. So for example, you don't pay VAT on them. And that obviously brings down the price considerably. You can park for free in lots of cities as well with an electric car. And in terms of price to purchase one, there's a parity of price there now with diesel and petrol cars, so much so that they're actually bringing back some of these incentives now because they're saying actually, uh, you know, some people will still want diesel and petrol cars. They haven't banned them there. Um, still, there's a lot of secondhand car sales there. The majority of them are the fossil fuel driven ones. But they have taken the approach of we want to incentivize, not penalize. And then in terms of the infrastructure, they have a much better charging system. So in Norway, there are just over 30 cars per charging point, whereas compared to here, it's something like 50 cars for every charging point. So there's a huge difference. And I think that's one of the big problems here in the UK is we're not doing enough to build the infrastructure and to incentivize people. So loads of people are priced out of the market for electric cars. And, and this is part of the British disease. It's tricky, but it's not rocket science. I mean, basically for governments, it shouldn't be tricky. It's sort of basic stuff. I mean, it's pretty obvious 
that the world is going to have to move to climate friendly, whether it's cars, whether it's manufacturing, all of this is going to have to happen. You know, even if you just see it in terms of the economic costs of climate change, they are going to be absolutely massive. We should be going hell for leather now. You know, investing in capital is, you know, stuff that you write off over years and years and years. Of course, we should be moving faster in terms of making sure there are many, many, many more charging points. And it is, you know, you, you mentioned Norway. China is way ahead of us when it mm. comes to both, obviously, the manufacture of electric vehicles, but also the use of electric vehicles. And, you know, it's because they take a long-term view there are lots of things that are wrong with the Chinese economy, but what? But one of the things they do do is they invest for the long term, and we've just got to learn that lesson and get on with it. Yeah, it feels like we're always saying that point. Although I am excited by, as you say, what BMW have been saying this week, and also Toyota who are working on this battery because that that's a big element to this. And I wonder why haven't we invested more in making batteries in this country too? There was. Uh, it feels like that we're behind the curve on that too. We are behind the curve, but that's partly to be clear, because you know, a lot of manufacturers took the view that out of the single market, this is a cost of Brexit. Yes, we have got some battery factories at last being created in the UK, mm. but much slower than yes. w- would have been the case if we were still part of the European single market um, because of the connection of you know the supply chains. One of the reasons why there is reluctance to invest in battery factories in the UK is because there are worries that basically the costs of shipping batteries to manufacturers in the single market are going to go up and that there is a genuine risk of this. So, uh, you know, this is a huge, hot and contentious issue and it is another potential or in fact, some would say real cost of Brexit. Yes, which um, I know we've had questions on as well, which we'll hopefully answer in coming podcasts. Uh, but we should probably leave things there, shouldn't we? Thanks again for everyone who's sending stuff in to us as well. It's great to see all the stuff you're interested in us talking about. Just a reminder, it's restismoney at gmail.com and uh, on socials, the rest is money. Yeah, I should let everyone know as well, we are changing our release schedule of the podcast now. So from now on, episodes are going to go out first thing on a Thursday morning. So they should land with you in the middle of the night, basically, between Wednesday and Thursday, rather than Wednesday afternoon. So do look out for the next episode of The Rest is Money next Thursday morning. But yeah, we should probably wrap things up for uh, the morning, shouldn't we? Well, we should probably wrap things up. I, d- I don't know if your production team have told you, but I'm thinking of popping up to be on your yes. show before too long. Yeah, you're going to be on the show. I heard this. Breaking news. I was told this excitedly. Exactly. Waving my book around. Making your way north to see us soon. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, should we get on with our day jobs? And uh, we will see you and speak we to you all. That next week that's it from us and the rest is money bye 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 bye